This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. What is it that we're talking about here? Sure. It's Slave.org. It's an online discovery tool that's a product of a tremendous amount of academic research in uh, the histories of enslaved people and enslaved societies, but also an intersection of historical research uh, with data sciences, and especially this area of uh, open source linked open data to work together uh, with, uh, with programmers and designers and uh, information studies uh, specialists, along with humanists, to build a resource or a discovery tool that scholars, very types of general publics, K-12 educators, family historians, uh, individuals would come and explore, sometimes searching for a very specific person, a named enslaved person, records about a named enslaved person, but sometimes about a place or a time. I first read about this new website in the Washington Post and knew we had a PreserveCast must-get guest. Fortunately, we've been able to turn this into a two-part episode, and we'll have an opportunity today to talk with one of the lead professors behind the complex but critical effort. Time to get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be talking with Dr. Daryl Williams, Associate Professor of History and the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in the College of Arts and Humanities at the University of Maryland. Uh, and we're going to be talking about his work, the research that he does, and in particular, this new website, Enslave.org, and, and the really fascinating work that it's doing to tie together the story of um, the enslaved people of uh, the Americas and um, trying to pull together all these disparate data sources to, to paint a picture and also really to kind of, I guess, underscore the humanity of all of this and, and the people who were caught up in um, this horrible moment uh, in American history. Um, but before we get there, uh, we love to learn a little bit more about the people that we're talking to. Um, so we'd love to hear more about you and and I suppose yeah obviously how you ended up working on this project but really maybe b more broadly what um, led you to the study of history and and how you ended up being a, a professor at UMD. Thanks, thank you for having me this morning, this snowy morning here, uh, Nick. Uh, my name is Daryl Williams and I am a faculty member in the history department at Maryland. I've been there for quite a spell, a little over twenty five years. Uh, I ended up at Maryland not because I had a connection to Maryland. Um, I grew up in Southern California and uh, I did go to school in New Jersey, but I just really didn't have much of a read at all on the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, but uh, opportunity came up uh, for a position when I was finishing my graduate studies. I uh, had been interested in Latin America since I was a child growing up in California and especially uh, very close to the US-Mexico border. And that was both seeing a space, a geography of people that were, were very close, but were also different. And it got me uh, to take some interest in, in, in that case, Mexico, but also Spanish-speaking uh, people and places and eventually into Latin America. I came to Brazil a little bit later when I was an undergraduate and I had the opportunity to start studying Portuguese. And out of that experience <clears throat> as an undergraduate, uh, I really developed a passion, uh, calling for the study of Brazil as a really big and fascinating and complicated place. The current research that I do now, what I have been doing over the last 10 years or so on Brazilian slave society is something, also a kind of something I came to. It was not uh, part of my early research, which was really much more on 20th century Brazil. 
But I came to understand that Brazil was uh, the largest slave society in the Americas, and there's just a tremendous amount of questions and problems and points of interest. And that began uh, the research that I'd been doing for quite a spell on uh, in Brazilian history and in the context of Latin America, the African diaspora. And so talk to us maybe in its most basic form about enslaved peoples of the historic slave trade, um, which can be founded in enslaved.org. Um, I guess in its most basic form, what is, what is this and, and how did you come to be involved uh, in it? Obviously, you're giving us that background on your you know, um, academic credentials in, in the history of slavery. It, it makes sense that you would be involved in a project like this, but how did it all come together? And I guess just, just to lay the groundwork, what is it that we're talking about here? Sure. Enslaved.org, it's an online discovery tool that's a product of a tremendous amount of academic research in uh, the histories of enslaved people and enslaved societies, but also an intersection of historical research uh, with data sciences and especially this area of uh, open source linked open data to work together uh, with, uh, with programmers and designers and uh, uh, information studies uh, specialists along with humanists to build a resource or a discovery tool that scholars and various types of general publics, K through 12 educators, family historians, uh, individuals would come and explore, sometimes searching for a very specific person, a named enslaved person, records about a named enslaved person, but sometimes about a place or a time um, and the records that are associated with, uh, again, enslaved persons, named enslaved persons, families, places, and so this tool uh, that we have built and made available is a product of uh, a federation of various kinds of data sets, some which have been around for quite some time, some digital projects like Slave Voyages, which is probably the most uh, well-known uh, transatlantic slave trade database, but some other projects that have had you know, a certain kind of vintage, 10, 20 years old, along with newer projects done principally by scholars, principally by historians, but not exclusively that have been working at this intersection of humanities and, uh, and data uh, to build data sets, which really are spreadsheets uh, that take information from original source materials, a whole range of archival documentary materials, bibliographic materials, and a process called extracting, or you know, drawing out and somewhat standardizing that information about uh, enslaved individuals, names, age, family relationships, body, health conditions, work, um, status, and putting those into data sets, which eventually federated together. So one would use this discovery tool, hopefully to find multiple instances, fragmentary, but nonetheless multiple instances of the same person that you could then put together to a life which may have been fractured by enslavement and fractured by the documents. Uh, we might be able to provide some tools to be able to put that life back together and its various component parts so that one could do biographical work uh, using some of our tools, but that's not always possible, but also bi biographical or genealogical work, but also to understand more broadly and fully the lives of the enslaved uh, from records which are oftentimes produced about them without necessarily their participation, direct participation or consent, but still tell, um, tell us things about incidents of their lives and sometimes even, you know, fragments, sometimes more than a fragment of their own voices as well. So again, let's go back to this discovery tool, which is a product of research, but it's also a product of 
the way in which archives and records were produced about and then stored uh, about enslaved people, and then what the process of um, using old-fashioned research, but also uh, some new data tools can help us to understand that. I mean, it for for a layperson, it seems painfully complex to like knit all of this together. Um, how long did it take to kind of from concept to fruition or has it sort of been an evolution? Because you talk about sort of, you know, some of these projects have been going on for 10, 20 years. This is sort of pulling it all together so that all these various disparate resources are, are available sort of in one query. Um, how many data scientists are behind this? Like, what, what has the mechanics been to actually make this thing happen? So we have a team, uh, which is based at Michigan State uh, University at the, the Digital Humanities Center there called Matrix. And it's a team which has, um, well, we've had various numbers of people, but uh, you know, a team of programmers, there's a lead programmer, and then she has a, a group of um, junior programmers who work with her, a designer, uh, and then some data information specialists. There's a couple leaders, uh, uh, co-PIs, one, I'm one of them. So it's probably a team right now of, I'd say, 10 to 12 people who are a core at the at Matrix, uh, where, you know, the... the the core group, but this partner projects that we've been working with directly uh, to build out the idea, uh, the language, the vocabulary, but also to identify and federate these data sets that are out there. We have had eight partner projects. Some of, as I said, like sleep, sleep what is now called sleep wages, have been around for quite some time. And um, they're based at various research institutions and uh, uh, universities in the United States and UK, other places. And uh, some of them are more recent, uh, newer. And so this, again, it's a the enslaved.org in its current form. We're in the second phase of funding from the Andrew Deborah Mellon Foundation. So we're in our finishing out our third year. But that third year of what we now call enslaved.org draws upon prior work, some at Michigan State for a project called Slave Biography, some at other places. Uh, some dating back to the 70s, 1970s. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating project, and it's interesting to hear about the data. Um, but what are the, I suppose, what are the implications of this? And, and maybe sort of more broadly, like, what do you hope to discover? What do other um, academics and, and historians, um, scholars of slavery and 19th, 18th, 19th, I guess, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century America. Um, is there is there a, a hope or an expectation that we might understand or learn something about slavery that we don't know or that is is sort of um, something that is elusive at this point? Um, and, you know, I, I guess I have some follow-up questions to that, but um, what is, what's the, the hope or is it just sort of like putting the data out there and seeing where it goes? Well, we are interested in making data more available, more searchable, more discoverable, sustainable. Um, you know, we have data set, we have, we have archival materials uh, that might be in a very precarious uh, state of conservation, uh, endangered by the elements in time. Uh, we have materials from family history, from and families, you know, people's, what they might have in their attic or, or an institution, organization, a church, which just is not, you know, continuing on as it had in the past. And so there's this sense of potential of loss of information. So we are interested in trying to provide, preserve uh, in a sustainable way. Uh, 
But I think that some of the things that we're really interested in um, advancing some of the scholarship, but also creating some new spaces, advancing the scholarship in around biographies and about the biographical lens. When we think about what slavery was, um, at least in a, in, a, in a very raw characterist form, it was a violent form of stripping individuals away from all their humanity, but also everything knowable or know, you know, everything we could know is about them is stripped away. And they were just these, these degraded um, persons who were victims of a crime, but beyond that, we don't, can't say much more about them. And that's not actually true. Um, we know that the lives of the enslaved, no matter whatever the conditions, uh, were lives lived by individuals who saw the world and interacted with themselves and their families, and they had a sense of self and this, the world around them. And some of that sense, some of those senses are registered in documents, documents which survive today. So we'd like to be, uh, 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 we'd like to be in that space where we can provide more information and provide more tools for people to understand whether it's an individual that you may actually be looking for because you have some sense or you want to know about some person or you want to just know about personhood in a slave society or personhood in a place under very difficult conditions. So really interested in that. And that personhood is the fullness. You know, you maybe not have the entire thing from birth to death, but what are the elements? What are the, what are the pieces and stages, the incidents of the life? And sometimes even, is it possible to find the voice of the enslaved, the voices of the enslaved in various moments of their own individual lives? So that's one piece about the biographies. Some of it is also about collective. Um, how do we understand the experiences of enslaved peoples in spaces and times? What was it like? We know slavery was um, in part uh, an experience of childhood because we had we have plenty of evidence in many slave societies of enslaved children. Um, but what was it, what were those experiences like of childhood? Um, and how do we how do we understand that, query that, what is to, to be a child in a slave society in Brazil in the 19th century and Jamaica in the 18th century and South Carolina in the pre-Civil War period. And so to be able also to query by various kinds of filtered variables age, uh, gender, uh, you know, I've mentioned also occupation, um, to then have uh, people presented with, here's a group of records about that, those particular variables. You have to kind of ask questions about that, query that. Um, there is this piece of um, also understanding even documents that, um, I use the U.S. Census as a as an example here. So, um, during the period of enslavement in the United States, enslaved individuals were counted. However, they were not named in the census, U.S. Census. So, you'll find the name of a master. You know, master is associated with uh, X number of enslaved individuals who are listed as individuals by but, but with unnamed, but usually by gender and and sex. So, these are unnamed. Of course, these were named people. What happens if we're able to take the U.S. Census materials? and then cross them with baptismal records or flight, slave uh, flight ads or court cases or property transfer sales or you know, just a range of other materials. And we have maybe records which we know are produced at the same place in time. And now we have this information in the census which was anonymized or it seems to be unknowable and we cross-reference that with other information. That might then help us to understand what was that enslaved family 
in that household, which, which the record, the census records the name of the master, but not the name by name. So that opens up other questions, you know, then how do we move the U.S. census forward into the post-Civil uh, War period and you know, beyond what's called the 1870 brick wall in terms of Black family and genealogy, African-American genealogical history. So there, there, there was those things about that, even when you have documents which have unnamed or unknown in one space, which suggest unnamed or unknown or stripping of names to use other ones to be able to, to try to understand or try to identify. And then this story, again, whether it's an individual personal story or it's a collective story or it's a story about a place and time and a, or, or it's a, a query, a, a concern, a, a challenge you have to the nature of enslavement, the nature of slave life nature of freedom uh, and the variety uh, in a place and time. Yeah. And I was going to ask about genealogy because it seems like, you know, when you talk about the, the brick wall of 1870, which, you know, people, some people are familiar with where it's so difficult to do African-American black genealogy prior to 1870. And it seems like this is, could potentially become a ready-made, you know, source or at least some, some material um, for, individuals looking to learn more about that. I, I am curious though, what's missing? Like, like what is there, are there pieces out there that you're like, Oh, we wish we could have that, but it's not digitized yet. Or we just haven't figured out how to, how to parlay this into this yet. Is there like a wish list of things that are missing or that, I mean, I know you're probably adding new things every day, every week, every month, but um, is there something out there that you're like, this would really change the nature of this. And that's kind of, you know, you're looking for sure. some me mega funder to come in and, and drop a bundle of cash on you to do it. Well, we, you know, we have had some very generous support. So I, 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 I I'm not, uh, uh, I don't want to be in a, any position of complaining about the support that we <laughs> have had, but and we are looking for, uh, again, new, you know, new support and partners. Um, right. There are a couple of things we're, we're looking, um, and I think this is something we can speak specifically to the United States. There actually is a lot of material that has been, considered archives and considered in in state state archives and state libraries and maryland for instance has a legacy of slavery uh and a legacy of slavery in maryland project uh, virginia has what's called virginia untold uh so but they exist sometimes in isolation or for that community but just because it's in virginia doesn't mean it doesn't speak to something that took place in maryland or the concerns that we might have in maryland so to be able to to be able to connect without actually having them, those particular partner projects having to you know, take the materials and change it in a different way, but through linked open data, and some ways in which we sort of make, uh, make with things which seem to be similar in different places speak to one another. But I think that um, the, I'll give you an example right now though, an area we are looking for some funding and this is from my research in, in the Brazilian context, but this would apply to much of the Americas, maybe a little bit less so for British North America, but uh, so I think we can make the case. We have vast number of records, ecclesiastical records, military records, civil records, police records, newspaper records, which register um, what was called in the, in the Portuguese case, nação, in the Spanish case, nación, these are these nations. This would be, there were some version of a political ethnic language group in Africa and some combination with slave ports. So these are ways in which in the Americas, slave societies from the perspective of slave masters assigned a place of origin to enslaved Africans. Yermina or Congo, Bengala, Kilimani. So we know that these are 
in the Americas, uh, the recommended in the Americas, we know that they they do correspond to some version, some projection of Af- place in Africa. Sometimes it seems to be an actual place, a geographic place, sometimes more of a polity, sometimes a language group. But we're still struggling a lot to say if someone in the Americas is identified as Kelimani, were they from Kelimani in Mozambique? Or is this something assigned in America? Is this an American invention? Or does this actually have meaning in in in, in Mozambican case, in the Southeast, Southeast African case? Because it might help us to understand then conditions and societies, slave societies in, in, in Mozambique just as much as it's about in, in this case, when I work on Brazil. So there's this, you know, we're calling it, I don't know, these ethnogeographies, uh, which are really, really significant piece of the record of enslavement in the Americas, that we need a lot of help with geographers, GIS people, uh, ethnographers, anthropologists, historians, to entangle and disentangle this, this nation or nation, which is going to tell us a lot of things about construction of identity and ethnicity uh, in the Americas. <laughs> also, identity, ethnicities, poly, you know, uh, political organizations in Africa, and in the context of the transatlantic trade and the connections between. So that's a big area that we are beginning to have the data. But now we've got to have you really know, bring some of the power to be of, of analysis uh, and to challenge you know uh, to, well to, to to query whether any any register of one nation uh, is this does this tell what is it telling us what is it telling us of that person and that person's experience or the community in which they are from. It's interesting, and this might seem like an oddball question, but when you're talking about the sort of this the 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 nations, um, you know, and this this idea that they were coming from different places is that a construct of sort of slave masters in America, or was that real? Um, I don't know if you've read um, Michael Twitty's book, The Cooking Gene. Um, no, I haven't. No, okay. which is it, it, but he's a an African American scholar of um, black cuisine in the South, and he kind of makes this case that there, you know, that there is truly a cooking gene or, or maybe not even so truly, but sort of a metaphorical one, but he's done a lot of DNA research into his background. I'm curious, is that will DNA potentially play into this at all? So that if you found a descendant of someone who said that they were, you know, from one of these, you know, the, the gold coast or something like, or the ivory coast, and then you were able to trace that back and say, yes, they were, does DNA have a role in this? I'm curious. You know, at this stage, we haven't, we're not really in that space, but we know right. that, um, in the world in which we live, DNA and its relationship to family histories and ancestries is a really important part. And for some, their identities, you know, because of a DNA test, they have been told, or you know, right. of course, there's all kinds of challenges about what the sample size is, et cetera. They are of X, you know, extraction or X. So we're not, we're not, um, it's like right now. And me personally, I, I, I'm not like, super um, invested in that, but I recognize that we may be able to provide more information based on uh, other kinds of sources other than DNA to maybe reinforce, maybe to complicate, certainly right. to contextualize whatever one today may get from an ancestry.com or other DNA to um, say that a DNA test result is a piece of evidence. It, even if it does tell you, does it tell you 
um, does it tell you like the fullness of what the even cooking and cooking cuisine culinary tra traditions or you know, genes as it were might be is that the full story probably not because of the time and the dynamic nature in which cuisine and cultures and works and developed within slave societies and so even if, and if you have a single origin place those people going to different kind of places do they eat the same kinds of food probably not how and why could that be and that gets us to this context um, which can be a really important um, space to understand to appreciate um, the specificities of, of lived experiences well i think this is a great place to take a quick break and then when we come back talking about lived experiences maybe we can um wrap up this conversation and talk a little bit about the humanity um, that is sort of encapsulated in these these records and, and how you're hoping to pull that out. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're just thrilled to be talking with Dr. Daryl Williams, who, again, is an associate professor of history and the associate dean for faculty affairs in the College of Arts and Humanities at the University of Maryland. We've been talking about um, his research and his work also involved in enslaved peoples of the historic slave trade, which can be found at enslaved.org. Um, and before we took our break, we were talking about sort of the missing pieces and how you contextualize this. And you, you ended with this comment about the lived experience. And we're going to actually be talking with a PhD candidate working on this project in a, in a second part of this uh, podcast series um, who's helping to humanize the data you've collected. So we don't have to go in depth in this, but I'm curious. I mean, I, I think that the answer is self, you know, sort of pretty obvious, but I'm curious how you feel about this. But putting the human face to the story, is that going to be critical to its success? I mean, obviously, it's, it's important and it's already successful in the way it's in, uh, impacting and, and engaging academics and research and the diffusion of knowledge. But uh, obviously, you know, as you said before, like the, these records were taken without really the consent of the enslaved. And so putting the enslaved and their humanity back into the picture seems just so critical. Is that a piece of this? Is that something, you know, you think about a lot as you're working on this? I, I do, my, my peers do, um, we're getting, you know, in the conversation with the data people on the, on the technical side to also remember what, whatever we're doing here, we're doing this around um, an ethics of humanity. And we're trying to take this from that, that we're talking about lives, <laughs> uh, uh, the lives of the enslaved and those were people. And if that, even if that's about data, um, so yes, you know, there is this you know kind of starting point that we have about the named individual, even if it's the record as an unnamed or unknown. There's something very immediate that we can, of course, know in our own experience because each of us have names imposed upon us for the most part. Though sometimes we choose other names or we adapt others, we adopt others. But we we have this understanding of to be a person is to be named, and to be you is to be named what you're named. And if someone calls you mistakenly or intentionally something else, we say that's not me and you want to correct them. So there's this connection to the name. And so to have a project which is organized around 
recovery of names and all the things associated with beginning with the named person and the name, you know, there's a connection there. I think there's a there's a there's a point of entry in ways that we sometimes it's unimaginable or unfathomable to imagine what it would be like to be enslaved. Or many people find it unfathomable that it's like to be an enslaver, even though American society is fundamentally, not, I mean, of course, there's many other ways in American society is fundamentally a product of enslavers and enslaved. We descend from that, that foundational uh, dynamic and arrangement. Um, and so that connection to the named individual and the, what the human and the human experience is, is important. I would say also though, <clears throat> in the sources that we have, even if they're sources which are very standardized and very dry, if you see enough of them, um, you know, historians know this, but if you, you know, you don't have to be a historian sometimes, you, you find enough, uh, even in the standard variety, you begin to understand because of some quirk of circumstance or because of some individual action or intent, there are variations and difference. And those variations and difference then get us into mindsets and strategies and, um, and personalities and idiosyncrasies and circumstance, chance, bad, terrible chance, sometimes fortunate chance. And uh, I think about, you know, some of the things we see in runaway or disappearance ads, which are, you know, very standard in the voice of the enslaver. My property or this person under my control has gone missing, has fled, and I want that person back. But in some of the language and the descriptions about personality, about body language, about habits about uh, strategies you find you know you get glimpses of some pretty interesting people who are doing some pretty interesting things with themselves and their bodies and their lives how they dress how they look the to- some of the horrible things that may have happened to them the injuries and that gets us to connect yeah i mean clothing alone i know people who study that and there's so much just to be learned just from that one little detail in there i mean you can kind of get a sense for how people were dressed and, you know, the fashion of the day. And I mean, just from a few lines in one of those sentences. Um, I'm curious, before we talk about how people can learn more and get involved, all that kind of thing, um, has anything happened in this project that surprised you? Right now, uh, because we've had, uh, we've, you know, we launched on December 1st, kind of public launch. And so we've got a great conversations. I appreciate very much this opportunity. And we've had some others, with some, you know, broad mainstream press and then, on social media. And so the interest hasn't surprised us. The, maybe the focus uh, from a humanities, you know, you know, from a digital humanities, humanities perspective, some of the attention that we've gotten from really broad, broad platforms has been wonderful. That's a little surprising. It doesn't often happen to historians. But I think um, we had a couple of things. In social media, we've gotten some comments from, I'm going to say the general public, but these are people who are um, uh, marking themselves as uh, African-American who talk about this project, not in this um, register necessarily of celebration or of discovery, but one of trauma. And that's been, su- it's not surprising, but yet it is also surprising and disruptive and how we are in this in this space of doing work about trauma to people and individuals in the past, but also this it's potentially tra- traumatic about people now, whether it's generally about the experience of blackness in America or in the Americas, or it's specifically about the recovery of trauma to their ancestors, families. 
So that's that's been working through that. And that's consistent with some of the work we're trying to do with ethics and talking to some partners who've worked with slave descendant communities, for instance, and you know, what's important, who needs to be at the table, who are we talking for, whom, with, why, what are some of the boundaries and limits, the things we can't do or shouldn't do. Um, on the other side, I, again, this isn't surprising, but uh, you know, saw some comments, some sort of chatter on comments, social media that says that this is a, you know, this is kind of a Trojan horse for the reparations movement, which I think is, you know, curious. Um, that's not really where we have been. Uh, however, um, sure, I suppose if someone wanted to use this information and you know make certain kinds of claims toward. Uh, a broad-based reparations process or an individual one. Uh, if it were to be so easy, <laughs> I think someone would have done that a long time ago. Uh, but I think that's another piece about um, the, pers the, the, first of all, what people imagine the uses of the material might be, uh, but also at a moment of, you know, of both racial justice, but you know, extreme racial uh, hostilities and tension in the United States and globally around blackness and anti-blackness, Black Lives Matter, how this project, which is within a university setting, um, is, uh, is interested in names very much, um, speaks to what we see in the streets in the Black Lives Matter movement, the Say Their Names movement, or all the things and the kind of reaction to the backlash to that. Again, not surprising, but to see it actually play out in real time uh, and to, to grapple with what are we doing, again, for whom, and you know, what, what are our sort of ethical responsibilities to do this responsibly uh, has been something um, that's very much on my mind right now. Yeah. And I suppose in, in addition to everything else, it just really underscores the power of data and facts and history. Um, and, and, you know, people are going to use it in different ways and respond to it in different ways. But um, I mean, obviously, with a public debut on, on December 1st, there's a lot of interest in this already. Um, and, and hopefully that means that this just continues to grow because it's just such an important project. Um, speaking of the project, if people want to learn more or get involved, um, how can they do that? couple different ways. So we have a, uh, for our scholars out there, uh, and those people who want to be within the scholarly, the scholarship of slave studies, we have a new journal called the Journal of Slavery and Data Preservation, which will be publishing peer-reviewed data sets. So in that academic peer review process, uh, you would submit and you can go onto the website, uh, slave.org and see from the Journal of Slavery and Data Preservation, how to go about submitting a data set, which would Go through a peer review process if it's accepted um, we might do some data cleaning but then it would be published and become part of the discoverability data that we have but we also know that not everyone is necessarily in that space to do the kind of work that's expected from us from a work of scholarship uh, and we're working through what we're calling community submissions so we'll still have to um, talk with a potential submission or someone who has submitted some materials to, to see, you know, is it a data set? You know, we're not in a position right now to take photographs of original documents, for instance. We're not an online archive. But if it's a data set of some form, um, you know, where's the origins of the material? Do you have rights to publish material, to you know, make this material public? Uh, but then to um, figure out where we can also put the, that material. So this is going to be of, of use to genealogical societies, individuals, uh, people outside higher education, outside the academy, 
who want to contribute to participate, they have information, they are at least partially in that data space, maybe not fully there, um, but you know, for many very good reasons are not within the rigors of the, of the, the academic scholarship piece, but still want to participate. And you know, the other piece is that we hopefully we're activating or um, as we engage with various kinds of um, contributors or conversations, we may not be the space for what you have, your interests are, but that space may be at the county level or maybe at the state level. It may be in your, uh, in your community. It could be in the classroom, the kind of questions and the materials that you have in the classroom if you're a teacher or, or a student. So get, move, expand the conversation about enslavement, about the lives of the enslaved, about the connections that we can have, the understandings that we can have to make it meaningful for us as individuals to make it meaningful for us as a society. So if we can help equip and push those conversations, great. Uh, and we, you know, we're hopefully looking, as I've indicated, to partners with some some uh, institutions here in Maryland, uh, among other places, uh, to uh, make the work that they've been doing and the communities that they're uh, engaged with more visible and more connected. It's fantastic and an exciting opportunity for I guess academics and community members alike. You know, I'm thinking of groups that have uh, digitized, you know, names of African Americans in cemeteries, and they have a data sure. set like that. I mean, that Absolutely. seems like it could align very well with this. And I know there's people working in that in that space who may not otherwise think of connecting to this. So there's just so many great um, applications of this work. Um, so uh, what's what's next for you? Are you uh, are you publishing right now? Are you working on something? Or is this enough work for you? Um, what, what, what can we expect to hear from you next? And I suppose if people want to learn more about you, where can they find out more about you? Uh, so for uh, you, they can go to the Department of History at the University of Maryland. My bio is there and some links to some things that I, I have done. I'm going to continue to work uh, with a team, which is Though we're in a COVID environment right now, so we're in many different places, but the team is mainly based in, in, in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, on uh, moving enslaved.org forward with what some of the things we've talked about. Um, I specifically work on 19th century Brazilian slave society, and so I have a good piece of scholarship, data scholarship, which is part of the project, which has been going through a process of peer review and going to be published there. So some of that will be discoverable. I've been working with this graduate student who, with whom you're going to speak as well. We're doing some stories using story maps and timelines and some animations, interactive things to, to spin off different kinds of, we have some stuff right now on, on um, social media right now. If you go to my Twitter at Daryl Williams, at Daryl Williams Twitter, uh, you see some um, work we're doing for with some Brazilian students who are reading some ads of ens about enslaved individuals and if we have that up on YouTube. Um, so we're kind of spinning some things out and then I'm also working on some conventional scholarly publications which are specifically on questions of freedom uh, and illegal enslavement in 19th century Brazil, particularly in Rio. And these uh, fundamentally kind of organized around these named individuals as individuals and as groups who are trying to reshape their lives as the as illegally enslaved in, in, in Brazil, but also shape, reshaping 19th century uh, Brazil and freedom itself. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. So interesting to hear about the work that you're doing and sort of the diversity of experience and all the applications of this. Just thrilled to have you with us here today. Last question before you go, normally the most difficult for any historian, your favorite historic place or site? 
well, uh, Rio de Janeiro is my favorite city in the world. Uh, I've spent quite some time there, and it's spectacularly beautiful. And you know, it can be also a terrible and a violent place there. Um, in terms of a historic uh, site, um, there are. I mean, the the one of the things which is really spectacular about Rio is its natural setting. Uh, and the way in which this ocean and the bay and these mountains are all together, jammed together in, uh, in a, with a city, like a big, huge, modern, very you know, urbanized city, but all with all these natural features. So there's a way in which I can't say it's, you know, one, and of course this particular site has, uh, it has certain kinds of meanings, but when I lived in a neighborhood called Laranjeras, um, I would have um, a view <laughs> out onto Corcovado. I literally had a window. I looked out on Corcovado. And so this, this Christ the Redeemer statue is a very famous piece of Rio, which is, you know, rhapsodized in Bossa Nova music. But I looked at that, and of course, I knew a little bit about the history of the, of the, of the construction of the statue, which was inaugurated in 1931, but also the way in which that statue was, that, that peak, rather, was always part of the historical landscape and topography of the city even from the early stages of the colonial period to now. And so this is kind of a combination of natural and built, historic, contemporary, my own lived experience, but also the, um, the magic and the wonder uh, of, uh, of Rio. And some things in that same view, which you saw some deforestation as well, and the rise of the favela, which grew over time as I lived there, you know, kind of to me sort of capture, you know, my, my image, my, historic, my historian's eye to this place, which I find very dear. Well, you can't go wrong with Rio. That's a fantastic answer and, and a great uh, cap to a really fun uh, interview and a, a great conversation. Uh, hope to talk with you again in the future. And thank you so much for joining us today. It goes great. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.